0: 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You don't need to turn there. Let me read it to you. The Apostle Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The Apostle Paul was writing to his mentee, a a man he had been coaching and mentoring in the faith, Timothy, who he had now sent out to put order into churches that were developing all across Asia Minor. He sent him this encouragement in a letter and he said, Timothy, a time is coming when men and women will not want to hear what you have to say about what I have said to them. A time is coming when people will want to hear what they want to hear and they will gather to themselves people who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. He said, don't worry, Timothy, I I know it's, it's coming. And in Paul's encouragement to Timothy, I want you to know that he had you and I in his peripheral vision. A time is coming and it's been at hand for a long time when people will want what they want and they will want to hear what they want and they will only want to hear what they are willing to agree with. And when that happens, when you and I get to the point that we only want to hear what we want to hear and we'll only hear what we're willing to agree with, what we do when we come to the word of God is far from what Chris was talking about a few minutes ago in surrendering. We actually sit on top of the word of God And judge the word of God for ourselves, whether it's valid or invalid. Far from surrendering our minds, surrendering our wills to the truth of what God has said about who he is and who we are, we in turn lord ourselves over the word of God and cease to surrender ourselves to him. Instead of surrendering our hearts to God, we intend to play God and decide for ourselves what we will agree with and what we will not agree with. What is truth and what is error. See, one thing that's really difficult about the Scriptures is that there are words in the Scriptures and things in the Scriptures that I, Robert, left to myself, just don't tend to think. The Bible often says things to me about me that I do not think about myself. And it's at that point I have one of two choices to make. I either surrender to the truthfulness of what God is saying about who I am And who he is, or I exalt myself over the word of God. And presume that what God has to say about who he is and who I am in relationship to him is wrong. And to that point, Paul says, those of us who have a tendency to do that wander off into myths. Into illusions. The book of Ecclesiastes that we've been studying for the last three months, throughout the entire springtime, that we're wrapping up next week. Has had a lot of difficult things to say. I mean, not difficult things to understand. The, the, the grammar is not hard. The, the syntax is not hard. The, the words aren't archaic. It's actually pretty easy for us to understand. But when it comes to actually surrendering ourselves to it, when it comes to finding delight and, and joy in the truthfulness of what God is saying through Solomon, we have a very difficult time with that. Lots of things have gotten stirred up, difficult words have been spoken, and it's at that place, it's in those moments that we want to be a people, like Chris talked about, who are increasingly identified by surrendering to the truthfulness of Scripture. Last week was a, a difficult word from the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but before we do, I want to pray for us. I want to pray that, that God would extend his grace to us in the time that we have right now, to help us, to enable us, to compel us, to surrender our pride, to surrender our wills, to surrender our thoughts, to surrender our affections to him, to listen to what he has to say about himself and who he is and who we are in relationship to him in the next bit of time that we've got because we're going to need his enablement. We're going to need his help. We're going to need his spirit to see that happen. So let me pray, and then we'll, um, we'll return to the fun of Ecclesiastes. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son Jesus and through your word that we have before us in the Scriptures. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, but providing for us. You are living an active word, your word that is sharper than any double-edged sword, your word that pierces down, dividing deeply our thoughts, our intentions, piercing down so deep as to divide bone and marrow, joints. Your word, living and active. Lord, we pray that. In the hands of your spirit this morning, your word would do that very thing in our hearts and souls. Go deep, pierce deep, divide thoughts and intentions, divide motivations and affections, divide illusions from truth, and help us to be a people who are increasingly surrendering to the truthfulness of your word and laying waste to the illusions that we find ourselves caught up in. We ask that you do this, Lord, for your glory, that through our lives, your name would be made great. And that in the process, we would experience and we would delight in and we would receive such a great joy for finding the one true hope that can never actually deceive. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus, whose life, death, resurrection, and coming return, provide us the hope, provide us the stability, provide us the foundation for these very things. Amen. Amen. One of the most uh, enjoyable things about being a pastor most weeks um, are the comments and the words of encouragement or the emails and uh, the things that you guys have to say uh, to us about what we say on Sunday. Now, now sometimes that's not quite that encouraging. Um, If I were to tell you all the encouraging things that people said to me throughout the week or on Sundays or or sent me in emails, uh, there would be a tendency for you to think that my head might get too large, uh, even for this space that we're in right now. But rest assured, if I were to show you the emails, um, share with you the critiques, uh, share with you the commentary that is not quite so encouraging, um, you could be confident that my ego has plenty of room to grow in. And one of the things that I love, um, and that has been really encouraging and, and helpful uh, over this series in Ecclesiastes, and especially this last couple of weeks, are the questions that this book has stirred up in you. The questions that you've been asking yourself and the questions that you've been asking me and asking the other pastors. And, and I want to point two of them out to you this morning before we continue on because I think that they, they've been encouraging to me. I hope they're encouraging to you, but they also give us some shape for, for where we want to go. And, and one of the first statements, uh, questions, that's come to me recently. I actually had this in a, in a membership interview recently as we've been going through the, the book of Ecclesiastes. This person said, Robert, uh, I've had to ask myself, and and I've always wondered, why have I left other churches, week in and week out, over a number of years, always leaving so happy and so encouraged with myself? But the majority of time, when I leave Redemption Hill, and, and you can probably figure out what the rest of that statement was, the majority of time when I leave Redemption Hill, it, it's not always that way. I'm not always so happy in myself and encouraged in myself. And As an evidence to God's grace, he, he restrained my mouth because my, my immediate response that wanted to come up is, well, because we've been committed to, to teach the entire Bible. I mean, why do you leave so discouraged in yourself? It's because we teach the Bible. There, there's nothing that we tend to run away from. There are, are words in this Bible that don't flatter you. There are words in this Bible that don't make much of you. How do you want me to preach the book of Ecclesiastes, especially Ecclesiastes 10 and 11 that we looked at last week, in a way that leaves you encouraged and happy in yourself? I mean, last week, Solomon painted the portrait of a fool of a fool, one whose life has been consistently caught up in the illusions that he's been trying to dispel for us throughout this entire book. And he paints the portrait of a person who lives not with wisdom, but in folly and foolishness, caught up in these illusions. And if you're really honest with yourself, and I think this person was, when you walked out of here, you realized that that portrait looked a lot more like you than you probably thought. There was a lot more of you in that picture than you anticipated, or or that picture of the fool was a lot more like you. Than you actually thought. But you know what? That's love. That's love. Sharing those things is love because we believe that oftentimes, difficult words, especially words inspired by the sovereign and good and providential God that Solomon has been talking about through this entire book, those difficult words are words that produce very soft hearts. They produce soft hearts. You know, the Apostle Paul, who, who, who wrote that encouragement that we read in the beginning of Timothy, he actually wrote some difficult words to a church in Corinth. He actually, from what we understand, wrote four letters to him, although only two were actually preserved in the Bible. So we don't know what the other two actually said. But in the beginning of his second letter, he actually acknowledged the fact that he may have said some things that were a little bit harsh to him previously. You know, I may have said some things that were, that were difficult or, or harsh to you, but you know what he didn't do? He didn't take them back. He didn't take them back. He didn't apologize for the things that he had said in in love that were the truth about the, the state of this church's heart. And he didn't take them back because that sorrow, that conviction that his words produced, that sorrow is what leads to repentance. That sorrow is what leads to change. That sorrow is what leads to deep and profound and lasting joy, which is the very place that Solomon is taking us to. It's the very thing the book of Ecclesiastes is is meant by God to produce in our life. Joy, deep and lasting joy. Joy that is not shallow and found in the illusions and superficial realities of the world that we find ourselves in. Joy that's not found by exchanging the truth of the Creator for the temporal joys of the creation, but deep, lasting joy that's found in knowing who God is and who we are in relationship to Him in the midst of life in a very difficult And broken and fallen world, it's meant to produce lasting joy. But it's not meant for you to walk out of here all happy and slappy about yourself. That's not what's happening here. Ecclesiastes is meant to produce deep joy. And and I'll be fair. I think the person who shared that question with me and shared that honesty with me actually got it. Because I had to write down what they said after that. And said, here's what I've realized I've realized that I actually have nothing to be encouraged in by myself. For all of my time here, I've begun to learn that all of my encouragement, it comes from Jesus. Who he is, what he has done for me, and what that means about who I am to him. That is the fruit of the gospel. That is the fruit of honest and oftentimes difficult words ordained by the sovereign God who loves us and has called us to himself. That's a picture of what God is doing in our lives. That's a great and encouraging response to some things that we say on Sunday. I like those things. Those aren't always what we get. The second question I want to share that's come really over the past couple of weeks, and and I wish I had more time to spend with each of you. And and sometimes I get frustrated, and sometimes I lament that uh, the way that God is doing things here, I don't actually get to spend a lot of time with each and every one of you. But I've heard from other people, and I've heard from Chris, and I've heard from Ray, and I've heard as people have talked and wrestled with Ecclesiastes, especially last week, Especially what 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 we talked about last week, that there's been this question that's risen to the surface, and that if this is wisdom and this is foolishness and this is my life and and this is where I am and this is what God is calling me to, and this is what I've been caught up in in these illusions, and this is what God has is designed for me. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And you know, here's the thing I had to wrestle with this week, and I and I love it. I love when God really deconstructs my, my, my own preconceived ideas and my own sin. Whenever I have heard people ask me that question, probably for the last three or four years in church, I've always had this knee-jerk reaction. Ask me what you want me to do, and I want to go, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You want me to tell you what to do because you don't want to deal in your own conscience before God with what God is calling you to do. Don't don't ask me what you should do. Ask him. But you know what? God had to deconstruct something in me this, this past week. As I heard this question popping up more and more, And I began to pray, well, how am I going to respond to this in in graciousness? I remembered that when Peter stood up at Pentecost and preached the message of the gospel, what was the natural response to the truthfulness of Scripture going out? People heard the word of God. The living and active God speaking through his apostle, through Peter, it pierced their heart. It divided their thoughts and their motives, their intentions and their affections. And what was their response? Brothers, what then must we do? What do I need to do, And so I've been very encouraged as I've heard that through this series, and especially last week, a lot of you have been asking the question, what do I do? That's the natural fruit, a natural response to the work of the gospel in your life. And what I won't do is tell you what I think you should do, but what we'll do this morning is go back a little bit to what we said last week, and we're going to see if we can't let Scripture answer what you should do. Instead of me telling you what I think you should do, because I have ideas of what I think you should do. Let's take some time this morning to see what the scriptures say that we should do in response to what's been said. In the response to what we looked at last week. So before we actually jump into doing that, I want to give you a 50,000 foot flyover of what we said last week in case you weren't here. Because for some of you, it seems like last week's sermon was kind of the dagger between the shoulder blades. It's all been building up and it's all been going. And then last week, you saw yourself in the foolishness of your heart and it felt like Brutus stuck it right in your back. What, what do I do? Well, here, here's what we said. Ecclesiastes 9. We started in chapter 9, verses 13, uh, through Ecclesiastes 11, verses 6. And we're not going to read it all and preach it all. I'm just going to hit the highlights just to let you know what we talked about so that we can head in the right direction this morning. We said in the beginning, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 13 through 16, that This was written by Solomon to kind of stir up your heart, stir up your affections, shake you into reality so that you could see that just a a little bit of foolishness, just the, the littlest bit of foolishness goes a long way. A little bit goes a long way. It doesn't take a lot. One moment of foolishness, one carefully crafted lie can destroy a lifetime's work of a reputation. A little bit goes a long way, and he wanted to get your attention so that you would begin to think, wait a minute, where is this in me? Is this alive in me? Is this characterizing me? Where is this found in me? And then he goes on to say that foolishness and wisdom, foolishness in particular, it's not an issue of just what you do. It's not just an issue of what you say, but foolishness and wisdom are our attitudes of the heart. If you want to find out whether you're characterized by foolishness or by wisdom, we need to deal with your heart, not just your behavior's. And then he goes on for the rest of the time to to unpack some distinguishing marks, some distinguishing characteristics of how foolishness and how wisdom give forth to to words and actions in our life. And he says that fools generally love the companionship or the company of fools. I still haven't figured out a way to say that fools of a feather flock together, but um, maybe somebody will make a shirt with that one. I don't know. Um, Fools love the company of fools. The next thing we unpack, and we spent some time on this one, was looking at the fact that fools tend to be characterized by short-sightedness. They tend to be characterized by short-sightedness and and not having the capacity, the willingness to count the costs of what they're about to do. To actually count the costs of what they're about to do, what they're about to say. And he gave a series of examples of what this looks like in life and and how this plays out in the life of a wise person and a foolish person. And we said that his fools don't count the cost. The wise, on the other hand, by implication in the text they're the ones who recognize not only where they're going, but how they're supposed to get there. The wise are the one in Solomon's metaphors and examples of, of cutting and hewning logs, the wise are the one that recognize before they even start that their axe is dull, they got a lot of wood to chop. So, to get the most done, the most efficient way possible, we best sharpen this thing before we start swinging. We best sharpen this axe so that we can lay waste to all this wood before us so that we don't necessarily have to work harder, we're actually just working smarter. And wise people, people who are characterized by godly and biblical wisdom, know who God is calling them to be. And they understand the steps that under God's providence they're taking to see that born in their life, to see their lives transformed into that reality and image. And from that, we kind of continued on. And there are some things we didn't touch on too much. But Solomon goes from that to say that another way you can recognize foolishness is that fools are consumed by their own mouth. And I'll tell you what he meant there. We didn't unpack this a lot last week. But he said, the fools, you can recognize the things that they say, and by the time they get done talking, their words, their mouths, their own statements have consumed them and exposed them for who they really are. The fool probably has all big plans about who God's calling him to be. This is the man God's calling me to be. This is the woman God's calling me to be. This is who God's calling me to be in the place where I work. Oh, he's told me to do this. He's going to do all this through me. He's got big, big plans, really good at articulating them. By the time he shuts his mouth, which... He rarely ever does. His own words have consumed him because his life in no way, shape, form, or fashion measures up to the things that come out of his mouth. Fools are ultimately consumed by their own mouths because they don't know when to stop talking. They don't have a right assessment of themselves. And in verse 20, we saw last week very briefly that oftentimes their speech gets them in a great deal of trouble. As they're much more careful to say things behind people's backs instead of to their faces. Fools' mouths will consume them. And then he goes on to say in a couple verses later that fools, all of this foolishness, all of this nonsense that is born out of their heart that's just absolutely nested in folly, fools ultimately get worn out by their own foolishness. Go back and read this in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes ten fifteen. Take some time this week to go back and read this because here's the end. Fools ultimately get worn out by their own foolishness. They work, and they work, and they work. They go, they go, and they go. They do all the things that they're doing without any understanding of where they're going and where they're heading. And Solomon says, the fools work so hard in all their toil, but they don't even know the way to the city. When it's all said and done, their own foolishness has worn them out and led them nowhere. And ultimately, he goes on to say that this foolishness is really born out of a laziness in their heart. A laziness that doesn't take the, or accept really the gravity of life in this world, the preciousness of the breath that God has given them, the preciousness of the life that God has given them, and in their own laziness, in their own laziness, their life falls apart. And we talked briefly about this last week, that we have to remember, brothers and sisters, and I I implore you to remember this. Your foolishness, your decisions, your folly do not just affect you. They don't just affect you. At the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 10, when Solomon unpacks the the birth of this laziness that this foolishness produces, you see that the laziness, it doesn't just affect the fool. His own house falls apart. In his own laziness, his own house falls apart. His roof leaks. His house is destroyed. The people in his life suffer. The princes and the kings who, who eat not for strength but for drunkenness, who have no idea or understanding of the responsibility they've been given Their own foolishness doesn't just destroy them and their position. It destroys all them that they were supposed to love, lead, serve, and protect. The fool, the fool is lazy. and In his own laziness, he destroys not only his own life, but those around him. But then he goes on in chapter 11, the wise. The wise. They're the ones who learn to lean into God. They're the ones who learn to find deep and living hope and comfort. Comfort. In the providential hand and working of God. The wise lean deep into the realities of who God is and who they are in relationship to him and then live life. With that comfort and that understanding, they are free to actually live. They are free, Solomon goes on to say, to make their decisions, to assess their opportunities, to look at who God's calling them to be, and to take steps towards it. The fool in his laziness contemplates all the struggles, contemplates all the difficulties, and never even takes a step forward because he's all caught up in his own laziness and contemplation of what possibly could happen. But when you find deep and abiding hope in the providential hand of God and the goodness of God and who you are in relationship to him, you have a freedom to walk. Because in the end, it's not really up to you, is it? It's not really up to you, is it? Have any of you added to the number of breaths? that God's given you? Really? This is what Solomon was saying last week. This was the portrait of the fool that for so many of us, and I know myself and included in particular parts of that, were just absolutely pierced. If you're honest enough to see that there's so much more of me in that than I actually thought, (laughs) the gospel response that's been produced is then what? What do I actually do? What do I actually do? How do I become one who who doesn't live with the lifetimes of I wish I could or I want to's that turn into, huh? I should have done that. How do all my want to's not become should haves? How does all my hope and all my future not turn into regret? How, how do I become one who's wise? How do I become one whose life does not portray him as a fool? whose words don't portray him as a fool? How do I become one who in the eyes of God and life with other people is actually wise? And here's where I want to go this week. I want to see an answer that the Bible gives us to that because the natural temptation that we would have and that question springs up in relation to what Solomon was talking about, was what are all the things that the wise person does? Therefore, let me just go do all of those things. If I could just change all the ways I talk and all the things that I do and the patterns of my life and my speech, then, then I'll be wise. Well, you might look wise at times. I mean, you might look wise But remember what Solomon said in the very beginning of chapter 10, in verses 2 and 3. Wisdom and foolishness are not necessarily matters of outward behavior and outward speech. It's a fool's heart. It's a fool's heart that inclines him to the left. And therefore, it's a wise man's heart that inclines his his life to the right. Wisdom and, and folly are not matters of behavior and speech. They're matters of the heart. And to get this, you, you've got to have just a, a brief understanding of how the Bible understands the heart to be conceived. I mean, for you and I, we talk about the heart and the matters of the heart and the issues of the heart and just and natural, cultural association with those kinds of things. We think Hallmark. We think Valentine. We think uh, 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 emotional love and connection and sentiment and When the Bible talks about the heart, the whole story of Scripture, when it talks about the heart, it's talking about what we would call the inner man. It's talking about everything that's in you, your mind, your affections, and your will. It's not just talking about this this emotional or or romantic notion of of love that emanates out of the heart that we tend to associate with it. No, it's talking about everything that's essential to you. It's talking about everything that's essential to you in, in your innermost being. You see, it's your, it's your mind that informs your affections of what the source of your highest and greatest and deepest joy is. It's your mind that recognizes that, that conceives of that, that notices that, that identifies that, and then informs your affections of what the greatest joy and the deepest joy and the highest pleasure you could find is. And it's your affections that take hold of that from your mind and stir your passions Stir your inclinations, stir your soul to such a degree that then it compels your will to take the necessary steps to see that joy had. It's your mind that informs your will, your affections, and it's your affections that inflame your will, and it's your will that carries you forward in the decisions that you make to pursue the thing that in your heart, in your inner man, in your inner soul conceives of as the highest joy. And the greatest good. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the heart. It's this unbelievable cocktail. This unbelievable blend of of mind and affection and soul. It's the interplay of those three things. Luke 6. Look at Luke 6, verse 43. Did I I make a slide for it? Let me just give you a little example of this. Look how Jesus talks about this. Jesus said in Luke 6, There's no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now listen to him. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart, his inner man, the interplay of his mind and affection and his will, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart... Out of the abundance of the interplay between the mind and the affections and the will, the mouth speaks. You see, what he just said is the same thing that Solomon has been saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. That person didn't make you do what you did. That circumstance didn't make you say what you said. What made you say those words to that person that were so hurtful? What made you say those things about that person behind their back to someone else with the intent of damaging that reputation that had been established? What What made you do that was not anything they've done. It was your heart. It was your heart. It's exactly what Solomon's been saying in Ecclesiastes 10. It's a wise man's heart that leads his life to the right, and it's a foolish man's heart that leads his life to the left. Nothing about life in the fallen world and the unexpected, the sufferings and the trials or the blessings and the surprises, nothing about life in the fallen world, compels you to respond to it the way you do. Your heart does. Your heart does. And if we're going to understand what it is to be wise, to find less of ourselves in that portrait of foolishness and more of ourselves represented in that portrait of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, we're going to have to deal with the heart. But here's the kicker to that. We've talked about this a lot. This isn't new for those who have been around, but here's the kicker. The Bible also says that the heart is... Unbelievably what? Deceitful. It's unbelievably deceitful. It's hard for you to actually know your heart perfectly. To know your mind and how your minds are forming your affections and what your affections are gravitating to and stirring your will to act in. It's incredibly deceitful. this This is what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5. He said, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For... These are opposed to each other. Why? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is not a pre-conversion, pre-regenerate description of a a non-Christian's heart. This is the actual description of someone who has been regenerated by God, who is living life in a a post-conversion reality. This is the description of a battle that rages inside of a heart that has been and is being transformed by Jesus. You see, indwelling sin, the the presence of remaining sin in our lives is at war in our hearts and in our souls. It's tenacious, it's it's destructive, and it's relentless in its opposition towards the grace of God in our life. So while it's our heart that directs our mouths and our behavior, it's our heart that ultimately produces what declares to the world around us. Whether we're wise or, or whether we're fools, it's hard for us to actually know what's going on in there sometimes because there's sin still remaining in there. My favorite's John Owen. He said this. You've got to have a little Owen in here. He said, as a result, he's talking of remaining sin. He said, many of us live in the dark to ourselves. Many men live in the dark to themselves all their days. Whatever else they know, they know not themselves. They know their outward estates, how rich they are in the condition of their bodies as to their health and sickness. And they're careful to examine these things. But as to their inward man, what the Bible calls what? The heart. As to their inward man and their principles, as to God and eternity, they know little to nothing about themselves. Indeed, few labor to grow wise in this matter. Few study themselves as they ought. Few are acquainted with the evil of their own hearts as they ought to be, on which yet, listen to this, on which yet the whole course of their obedience and consequently their internal condition do depend. If we are going to be a people, if we are going to be men and women who, who, whose lives move further away from the portrait of the fool, who, who find less and less of themselves being resembled in this portrait of the fool and more and more of themselves in this biblical portrait of, of wisdom, we're going to have to be men and women who become passionate about knowing their soul. We're going to have to be men and women who become passionate about knowing and examining their soul. We have to be passionate about studying our hearts. Because if, if Owen is right, if John Owen is right, ultimately it's our hearts, the matter of our hearts, that our internal condition rests on. The state of our hearts is an eternal matter. And there's reason to believe he's actually right. There's reason to believe Owen is right when he says this, because really I think he's just giving more words to what Paul, who we've been reading already, said to Timothy, who we already talked about in the very beginning, about this very thing. In his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, this is what Paul said to Timothy. He said, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Again, talking to Timothy in God's sovereignty, you and I are in his peripheral vision. And he would say, listen, Redemption Hill, everybody, sound of my voice, keep a close watch. A close watch on your life And on the teaching. Persist. Persist in this. Foolish men and women do not keep a close watch on their life and their doctrine. Wise men and women do what? Keep a close watch on their life and doctrine. You can talk. Wise men and women according to Solomon, are not short-sighted. They know who God is calling them to be. They know the steps that under God's providence are taking to get there, and they keep a close watch on their life, the state of their heart, its production, its fruit that's being borne out in their life, and they keep a close watch on their doctrine. Let me give this very brief caveat before we go too far because I don't want you to have an excuse to turn me off at this point. Yes, Paul was writing specifically to Timothy, who he had put in place over here to give care to these growing churches. Paul was writing to a pastor, and he was telling this pastor to keep a close watch on his life and on the teaching, to persist in it, because it will not only profoundly affect him, but it will affect those to whom he leads, whom he pastors, whom he teaches. But listen to me. Don't turn him off at this point. He's talking to each and every single one of us. One of the things that struck me most in a class I took not too long ago in, in seminary, one of my heroes, contemporary heroes, uh, pastorally, uh, Paul Tripp, was teaching it. It was a biblical counseling class. And he was sitting there giving the introduction. and I was just messing with the syllabus and, and really honestly half-heartedly, half-heartedly listening. Because at this point, I wasn't totally engaged in the whole process. And he said this, and it just absolutely shook me to attention. He said for many of you, 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 you look around and, and you think, well, my church never, never intends to have a biblical, biblical counseling ministry. We don't have a biblical counseling program. And he said to all of you who think that and all of you who would say that, I say you're a fool. I say you're an absolute fool. Because every single person, every person, is in the constant process of speaking words of life or words of death to one another. Every single person is in the constant process of speaking words of wisdom or words of foolishness to one another. Every single person in your entire church constitutes a biblical counseling program. It's either good or it's bad. It's either wise or it's foolish. It's either biblical or sinful. It's either gospel-centered or man-centered. It's either built on the righteousness of who God is for us in Jesus or on our own righteousness that we can achieve. Don't think you're not all in the process of ministering to one another. And it shook me like an alarm. Don't turn Paul off here because he's talking directly to a pastor. He's talking to you and I. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, when he says, watch your life, watch your doctrine, persist in this, for in this, you'll not only save yourself, but your hearers. Do you feel the weight? Do you feel the weight of that command on your soul? Does it mean anything to you? Does it weigh on you? Do, you? do you feel it? I want to point a couple of things out about this command to you, because I think this is how the Bible is leading us to respond to the what must I do in response to the am, am I a fool? Am I wise? I want to be wise. What must I do? I think this is an answer that the Bible has given us to this, and I want you to see a couple of things. First, I want you to see that your life and your doctrine are inseparable. Paul encourages us and encourages Timothy to pay equally close attention to our life and our doctrine. You can't watch your life accurately unless you understand what you actually believe. You can't watch your life and the fruit of your life accurately if you don't understand what you believe that's giving birth to that. You can't just look at your actions and diagnose what the affections are seen as the highest pleasure. You've got to watch your life and you've got to watch your doctrine. But at the same time, you can't just watch your doctrine and and ignore your life. Your doctrine, your knowledge does you no good if it doesn't inform and transform how you actually respond to it. James, later in the New Testament, speaks to this directly. He says, don't be like the man who, who looks at his face in a mirror, takes note of what he sees, and then walks away unchanged. Doesn't actually do anything about it. So the fool looks at himself. The fool takes in massive amounts of knowledge. This fool can speak well and articulately and accurately about the things of God and and the state of man, but none of it compels him towards any type of repentance and change. You have to give careful and equally attentive watch to your life and your doctrine. The other thing Paul says that I want you to catch, I don't want you to miss this, is that the process of watching your life and and your doctrine, you you must be persistent in. Your watch of your life and your doctrine is to be persistent. It's to be close and consistent, not casual and occasional. We can't watch one to the neglect of the other. But we must give our full and complete attention to both It's not a one-time deal. This is supposed to be a habit that's cultivated into our life, that's cultivated into our soul. The weight of this command is to change the way that we live. Your watch must be persistent. And and this is one of the kickers here. Third thing he says, and and I want to help you with this. He says, your watch, your watch of your life and your doctrine, your watch must be of yourself. Don't miss that. Don't gloss over that fact. I think for probably a good dozen years, that would be something that I've very quickly and easily glossed right over. Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself. I mean, most of us live and and respond. If we were to to watch a video recording of your life in relation to this command, we live as though we're to watch the life and doctrine of everybody else but ourselves. I mean, any of us can make an entire list that could fill a a booklet of all the things that we would rather give watch to. If I could be persistent in watching something, my life and my doctrine is probably not on the list. At least it's not in the top 10, 20, top 50 probably. But that behavior, that foolish response is to the detriment of our own soul, to the detriment of our own life. If you do not give watch to your life and doctrine, Back to what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Even when you walk, you, the fool, will lack sense. And you will say to everyone that you're a fool, your work and your toil will wear you out because you don't know where you're going, how you're going to get there, and ultimately your own mouth will consume you. We must, you must, cultivate the habit of watching your life and watching your doctrine on a consistent and persistent basis. And and here's what I want to do. I want to do something a little bit different than normal here at the end. I want to talk to you about something as we kind of bring this plane down to a close. How do do we actually do that? How how do you keep watch on your life and doctrine? How how do I respond to that in a way that brings wisdom? I, I want to share with you a strategy for watching your life and your doctrine. And it's just a strategy It's not a command, it's it's just a strategy. Much of it is born out of years of trying to figure this out. It's a strategy that I've employed in my life on consistent and inconsistent basis. It's just a strategy or a tool that I want to encourage you in and and, and follow you in. I I want to give you a kind of a strategy for watching your life in doctrine. So I'm going to tell you some things and, and explain some things and show you some things, and then we're going to give you something as you leave today what I would encourage you to do is to set aside some time on a daily basis or a, a minimum on, on a weekly basis. For me, it's Sunday night and I try to do it at least three nights during the week. But I do it every Sunday night. It's the start of my week going forward. Set aside some time just to you and God, an hour, half hour, 45 minutes, whatever, whatever you can do. I want you to set aside some time and here's what I want you to do. The first thing that I want you to do, the strategy that that's been so beneficial to me. It's the first thing when I, when I take some time before God is to make a list of all the evidences of God's grace that I can, I can see and that I can acknowledge in my life at, at this time. As I sit down before God to watch my life and to watch my doctrine, the first thing I want to do is I want to make a list of all the evidences of God's grace that I can point to in my life and sometimes in, in, in what's around me if I'm having trouble with myself. Because before we watch our our life and doctrine, I I want the right atmosphere to be cultivated. I I want the watching of my life and my doctrine to be one of joy, to be one of gratitude, to be one of of worship. You you can't boast in yourself and have an unclear picture of of yourself and an unclear estimation of yourself if you spend time transferring all of the glory to what you see is positive in your life to God. By taking time to recognize the evidences of His work and His grace in your life, it begins to recalibrate your your heart and your soul, and you take less stock in yourself as you begin the process of examining your heart. So make a list. Where are the things that you can point to where God's grace is at work and bearing fruit in your life? And then what's been fruitful for me, and there's going to be multiple ways that you can do this, I have a list of the of the roles in life that God has called me to live out right where I am right now. And where God has put me right now, I first and foremost am a Christian before him. That's a role that I live in this life. Next to that, I'm a husband. Next to that, I'm a dad. Next to that, I'm a pastor. And then next to that, I'm now responsible for this growing kind of network of other churches in our region that I'm supposed to be responsible for. Those are the, those are the roles. You, you can't really effectively live in any more than probably four or five. Some of you even less than that. But those are the roles that I have to function in every single day. And here's what I do. I make a list of those things. And then I take the embodied values, the things that we have talked about from the Bible that we want to see increasingly cultivated in our life, and I examine my life. I watch my life and I watch my doctrine through those things. Sometimes I take the the gospel identities that that God has defined for us in Scripture, the ways that he sees us now because of the gospel, and I examine my life through those things. Let let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, Go to the the next slide. I'll I'll show you kind of how this works itself out. So if I were to take uh, an identity, let's say I'm, I'm a dad and my role in life that I'm going to examine and watch my life, I, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a, I'm a family man, and I would ask myself at night before I, I go to bed or on Sunday night before I move forward in my plans for the next week, as, the, as a servant, as one who has, called, has been called by God, Paul said in Romans, to outdo others in, in showing honor to other people. As one who's been transformed by the gospel, who, if I want to be great in the kingdom of God. I first must become least. I must be a servant to all. If if I'm a servant of God through the gospel, how is that reflected in in my life, in my role as a father and a a husband? Would my week or my day demonstrate to others that I'm first and foremost a servant of the Lord? Have I served myself or other people primarily? Have I truly served the well-being of others and loved them as myself? Have I strived for personal glory, either aggressively, like on an ego trip, or passively? preoccupied with my own low self-esteem. What's my life and my doctrine look like? What's this look like in my world and what's giving birth to it? I take the embodied values. Go to to the next one. I I can do the very same thing and look at my my life as a dad or or as a husband. Let's flip over to the next slide. And I can say, we want to be a people who are increasingly displaying God's strength in our weakness. And I can ask myself, today is in my relationship with Aaron, in my relationship with my, my kids, Have I consistently acknowledged my limitations and needs out of confidence in Christ's gracious power? Have I demonstrated a willingness to admit my limits, mistakes, sins, weaknesses? What weakness am I not willing to put on display? Have I spoken of my weaknesses in ways that point to my confidence in Christ, genuinely seek help from people who can help, or or edify other people? This is a process that I, I go through either on a daily or a weekly basis to be persistent in watching my life and, and watching my doctrine. And I would, encourage you to, I would encourage you to begin to cultivate this habit in your life. We're, don't try to write all these down. I'm going to give them to you before you leave. And I'm going to give you even more. We've put together a tool kind of based on these identities and based on these embodied values to help you in this process. So don't, don't fret about writing them down. But here's my thing. Use it, don't use it. Just do something. This isn't a new law that you have to follow. Sit down, Robert said, go through this and go through this. Take some questions, write your own. These are all questions that I've collected for years of reading. When you read something and it challenges your soul, write it down. Put it in a collection of questions that you examine your life and your doctrine by. Just do something. Just do something. Mix them all together. I, I don't care. Just do something. Cultivate the habit of watching your life and your doctrine closely. And then, lastly, let me encourage you this way. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Hebrews 3, 12-13 says this. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's not talking about preaching. He's not talking about preaching. He's talking about day in, day out, interaction in life together. The Bible doesn't simply just diagnose our problem. It doesn't just open up the sinfulness of our own soul and and put it on display and and just leave it there for everyone to see. It It actually answers the question that everybody's been asking, what must I do? It exposes the problem and then it it answers the very question we've been asking, and God answered it by saying this, I've given you myself and one another in order that you may protect your heart from deceitfulness. I've given you myself, my son, the gospel, and one another, that you might protect your heart from the illusions that so easily ensnare you and their hardening effects. I have given you myself, I've given you one another, and you need that help daily. You need that help daily. And as we wrap up, I'm going to read you something before I pray. Much of what I have learned, if not almost all that I have learned outside of the Bible, about the practice of watching my heart, guarding my heart, watching my doctrine, has come from a pastor, uh, C.J. Mahaney, who is an unbelievable gift of God's grace to, to his church. And he said this, and I want to leave you with this and encourage you with this. He said, I, heart work is... Certainly hard work, it's humbling work, but it's necessary work because sin is always at work in me and that, my friends, is why we need one another. Although it's not easy to specifically confess my sins to others, the reality is that I cannot watch myself by myself. I need other people. I need the discerning eyes of friends on my heart and life to fulfill this command. God in his wisdom has designed it so If left to myself, my discernment of sin would be deficient and my growth in godliness limited. Because I can often see other people's sins so clearly, I assume that I can see my own sin clearly. But it doesn't work that way. My own sin has an unusual ability to blind me, almost as if it never existed. The sin of a sinner like me is so self-deceiving. And then in this, he quotes another guy, Paul Tripp. Who said this, since each of us still has remaining sin in us, we have pockets of spiritual blindness. Our most important vision system is not our physical eyes. We can be physically blind and live quite well. But when we're spiritually blind, we cannot live as God intended. Physically blind people are always aware of their deficit, and they spend so much of their lives learning to live with it and its limitations. But the Bible says that we can be spiritually blind and yet think we can see quite well. We even get offended when people act as if they see us better than we see ourselves. The the reality of spiritual blindness has important implications for the Christian community. Hebrews 3 clearly teaches that personal insight is the product of community life. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I'll listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. My self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me. And then CJ continued on. Since my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror, I need to ask others to hold up the mirror of God's word to me. I need to humbly, but diligently and aggressively seek out appropriate individuals and implore them to help me see my sin. And I must honestly inform them about my temptations and sins instead of presenting a carefully edited, flattering version of myself. If I limit the evaluation of myself to myself, I will simply deceive myself. I certainly won't be fooling anyone else. That's exactly what Solomon has been saying this whole time. As we persist in watching our life and our doctrine closely, Paul gives us this encouragement in the end. As we do it, you will say it both yourself and your hearers. As you and I, in obedience... In obedience, move forward and cultivating the habit of watching our life and watching our doctrine closely. We should and will have a growing confidence that God will preserve us and those whom we love, those whom we serve, those whom we live with and speak to. Because like every single promise in the rest of the entire Bible, like every single promise in the rest of Scripture, it's yes and amen is found Where? In Jesus, the confidence with which we have to see our lives transformed and preserved in the hand of God is found in our one and only mediator between us and God. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus, in whom every promise is yes and amen. That's the confidence that Paul has and that we should have. In God, who will preserve us and change us to the end. So here's how I want us to, to respond this morning. Here, here's here's, here's my, my call. You are going to receive a packet before you leave that we have put together that is just a strategy to help you in this process, to help equip you in the process of watching your life and watching your doctrine. It's an explanation. Chris has done a marvelous job in explaining what we're after here and explaining why this is so important and kind of guiding you towards how to do this and live this out in your own life. It's going to encourage you to find one or two other people to commit yourself to. It's going to give you all of the questions and the things that I kind of gave examples of this morning and how you can cultivate a habit daily or weekly of watching your life and your doctrine and how you can come together and encourage one another as it is still today that your hearts might not be deceived by the illusions that so easily capture us and suffer the hardening effects of those things together, how we can learn to live life together, life in in the third dimension. And you'll understand what that means when when you read this. So uh, I'm going to encourage you to take this, read this, use this. Uh, uh, Mix it. I don't care. Just use it. Use it. I encourage you to do that. And so we're going to reflect, and there's going to be a question or two that will come up on the screen or in your bulletin. And then you can reflect as well on on these questions as you get them. And then we're going to actually respond by taking communion as is our normal process. And as we take communion, we're going to be doing it remembering this. I want you to remember this. Who stands behind this word and guarantees the fruit of our obedience? We take communion. I want you to remember who stands behind this command, this promise in the Bible, and guarantees its fruit. Who and what empowers you in your close watching of your life? Empowers you in persistence and diligence in the process. You see, we take communion, and I want you to remember that without Jesus' finished work on the cross, the burden of the command to watch your life and doctrine would crush you. Without the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross, the burden of that command would absolutely crush you. But because of his work, because of who he is and what he's done, you can have hope that your life will increasingly reflect the transformation of the gospel. And you can have hope that your life and your ministry to one another will bear the fruit of that same transformation in other people's lives.